Hello, everyone, and welcome back to In This Day and Page, a West Des Moines Public Library podcast. I'm your host, Maggie Martin. In today's episode, we sat down with our library director, Daryl Eshte. If you're listening to this episode between October 1st and 7th, it's Banned Books Week. While we chatted, Daryl shared the historical context behind Banned Books Week and also explained why we celebrate here at the West Des Moines Public Library. So without further ado, let's welcome Daryl. So to start us off, could you tell us what your name is and what your preferred pronouns are? I'm Daryl Eshte, and my preferred pronouns are he, him, his. What is the last book you read, or what are you currently reading? I'm reading Chuck Klosterman's The 90s right now, which is Mm. kind of like a sociographical, uh, sociological, sociographical study of the decade that I came of age in, and I think he came of age in, and it's been very fun to read. It's reminding me of stuff I completely forgot about, and... And so much of what's going on in the world now, I think, has its, like, real origins in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's weird the way that the, the little details about the 90s have been forgotten, and he remembers them very well. Is that the one that has the phone on the front? Yes, yeah. and I owned that phone. <laughs> yes, and, and it seems like, like every other person had that phone in the mid-90s. So can you tell us... I mean, you were on our podcast, you've been on multiple times, but it's been a little bit. So Mm -hmm. can you refresh people on how you stepped into the role as director here at the library and where you were at before you joined us here? Sure. I'm I'm originally, I was was born and raised in South Louisiana, about 45 minutes southwest of, uh, of New Orleans in a town called Homa. I started working in the Terrebonne Parish Library when I was 16 as a page, uh, mostly because the library was on the school bus route home uh, and it was convenient. And as I did the work, I got interested in it and then went to library school. I was the head of a reference department at the Terrebonne Parish Library for 10 years and then started looking for directorships in other parts of the country and made a stopover in Wisconsin and then Ended up library director here when they were looking for one back in 2011. And then I'm sure your days look different uh, constantly, but what what's kind of a normal day look like for you? Uh, well, a normal day usually has meetings scattered throughout it. Uh, very often on Tuesdays. Today was an exception. We have like a, there's a I'm a I'm a department head for the city of West Des Moines, so we have a department head meeting on Tuesday mornings with the city manager. Uh, that, well, there's a friends board meeting tonight um, that I, I sit on a friends board meeting. There's library board meetings on Tuesday nights usually. Uh, we have budget meetings tomorrow. So lots of meetings. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, answering emails, sorting through the, the, sw- the, the sort of swarm of emails that I get every day, trying to make sure that they, are, they stay under control because uh, I have a bad reputation as a, a person who loses control of his inbox, and I fight with that. And um, then talking to people, sometimes I'm asked to fill in at a desk here and there, just like you were doing just before we mm-hmm. came in here. I fill in at a desk here and there. Sometimes I have to go out and talk to somebody who's having some issue or, or another. So a lot of uh, internal customer service and external customer service and doing a lot of writing, you know, doing research and writing, you know, budget season or writing a report for the board or something like that. A lot of, a lot of nerd work. <laughs> And you're fabulous at all the nerd work. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a good nerd. Well, transitioning into more nerdy things that I sure. know you enjoy, uh, intellectual freedom oh, is yes. one of your very favorites to talk about. Yes. So uh, we are in 
when this podcast comes out, it will be Banned Books Week. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to chat with you about that. So just to kind of set the foundation for people who might not be aware or know what Banned Books Week is, can you give kind of an, a description of it and, and maybe why we celebrate? Um, sure. Banned Ban Books Week as an ev- a capital E event uh, started back in the early 80s, uh, not long after the election of Ronald Reagan. But it, it had been something that was being discussed in library circles for a long time. Back in the mid-60s, um, there was a woman by the name of Judith Krug or Klug. I think it's Krug, K-R-U-G or K-L-U-G, one or the other. She founded the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom. And uh, they were of the opinion that educating people about efforts to censor or ban books uh, or sort of broadly educate them was a good idea. I think the theory was that if people understood what um, people who were trying to censor various works, what they were doing and why they were doing it, I think the idea was that even if it wouldn't slow it down and stop it, it would at the very least give people the information uh, about what it was that was going on. Uh, you know, in the in the history of the country, you know, librarians, especially in the twentieth century uh, and into our in the, into the twenty first century, you know, librarians became more and more organized as in an organization, and um, at, you know, the twentieth century uh, has been described as a century of movements, you know, communism, fascism, uh, count, you know, anti-fascism, anti-communism, all you know, movements and counter movements. And all of those movements and counter-movements tend to have something in common, and that's seeking some sort of ideological purity or um, trying to keep information that works against them repressed somehow or the other. That's been kind of a, a common, that was a common theme that ran throughout the century. And librarians often were uh, in the midst of that. Um, we can talk more about it, but I'll just briefly mention there was a, a book uh, by Herb Forstall, F-O-E-R-S-T-A-L, written back in the 90s, and it was about um, the efforts of the of the government, State Department, etc., to work through libraries and basically recruit librarians as spies to mm-hmm. keep um, totalitarian movements under some sort of watch or under control. So li- libraries are very often where um, governmental forces, political forces, that they often end up uh, right in the crosshairs of the, the first steps of movements. Movements like libraries, and they like to use them. Cool. Um, so we take the time to celebrate Banned Books Week here at the Weston Wayne Public Library. Um, so why do we here at the Weston Wayne Public Library like to celebrate? Um, I think I think that the reason that we I like to celebrate it. I know that this is probably a terrible answer, but I. F- I th- mostly out of morbid curiosity. You know, uh, my mom told me a story about when she was a little girl. She went and visited her cousin, who was a college student. Uh, my mom's from Pittsburgh, and, and I forget where she went and visited. But they went and saw a movie called The Man with the Golden Arm, starring um, Frank Sinatra. Frank's, she was like 10 years old at the time. I mean, the, the movie probably was inappropriate for her, but the movie's about a jazz musician who's a heroin addict and who's going through withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And when my mom, my mom, who was in Catholic school, went back to school on the, the following Monday, and, and the 
you know, the nun slash teacher asked, what did you guys do this weekend or whatever? And she said, I went with my cousin Patsy to go see the man with the golden arm and, and she got in trouble for it. The Catholic Church used to maintain a list of books and movies or whatever oh, sure. that were sort of on the on the no-go list and it was regularly updated. I'm one of those people who has read or at the very least looked through just about every banned book that every government or, or religious group or whatever has had a problem with, mostly because... Um, I find it fascinating th- that people haven't have have an issue with it. People have the idea, and I think, in a way, I think it's optimistic. And I've gotten people have fussed at me about that too. People really believe um, that in 2023, what what's in a book can really ma- make a big difference in people's lives. They, they they assume that people are really paying that that close of attention. Um, my experience is more mixed than that, but I, we celebrate it just to give people the information is what, what is under challenge. I mean, I've always had a problem with the name banned books week because so many of the books that end up on the list aren't really banned. Right. They, people just have a problem with it, but it's interesting to see why people have problems with information. It's interesting to see, to think about where they're coming from. Because sometimes, you know, you'll look at what it is they're trying to, or that they have an issue with. And you'll say, oh, I can kind of get that. And then other times, you know, like something like The Man with the Golden Arm, you know, because if you read the novel that the that the movie's based on, I mean, it's a pretty hopeful book. The guy eventually kicks the addiction, if I call, if I recall correctly, and turns his life around or whatever. But um, I, I think that we celebrate it to inform people. We want people to be informed about what's going on in the in the world of books publishing and information are there any new challenges that we're paying a lot of attention to right now i i mean in terms of locally i know there have been well i mean uh, the there there have been some some changes to the law in our state um you know there's been challenges to the way that library or school librarians can put stuff in school libraries um, you know, there's the controversy being that any materials that talk about, if I recall correctly, sexual behavior, the state legislature passed a law saying that teaching about gender theory under sixth grade is something that can't be done. And of course, that reflects on the, um, reflects on the, the collection of, of libraries or whatever. So, you know, we keep our eyes on those. So, so far, no legislation that has come after the, the content of collections of public libraries. Um, but, uh, you know, the re- I think the reason that, that people like me watch them uh, uh, is because since I, I use the word censoriousness, censoriousness is, is an environmental thing um, that, you know, you can, you can sort of get a sense of how acceptable censoriousness is by keeping an eye on, on what 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 is it's happening on that front. So now that this has happened with the schools, it wouldn't be as much of a surprise if if somebody tried to introduce a bill or something that had to do with with public libraries. Um, and and that's the reason that we that we keep our eyes on those things just to sort of get an idea for where you know as they say where everybody's head is at, and and what their expectations are. I think it's it's important to know. Absolutely. So. If someone wanted to challenge material here at the West Des Moines Public Library, um, what's the process for them to go about that? Well, I'm going to give sort of a two-pronged answer, that, that there's a formal process and an informal process. You know, every now and then I'll get a, a, somebody will leave me a voicemail or they'll send me an email, and, or they'll sometimes even leave a handwritten note in which they've made, made clear that there's something in the collection that they don't approve of. Um, or, or that they have an issue with, 
or something sometimes even something in the building they have an issue with and I'll very frequently get back in touch with them I'll try to talk it out with them and 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 explain as best I can the thinking behind adding whatever it is that 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 has them concerned or the you know or maybe it's a display or a statement or something that's made that has them concerned and 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 talk it through with them um that that's the informal process if it doesn't seem to be satisfying them i'll say do you do do you want to file a formal complaint and and we have a a formal process and and what it is is it's a form especially if it's about something in the collection where they leave their name in their in their contact information the name of the the item and then we ask them a series of questions that's mostly used in the in, in the evaluation process the process things like are you aware of any reviews of this item um did you did you read the the entire are you the person who actually read it or, or are you just working off of a report the reason for that is because if 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 somebody really wants to make it into a fully formal reconsideration that will involve members of the board etc these are, we like to have these kind of questions answered you know if 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 they're just sending along something that they might have read in an article or something they're saying i hear you have this book and i don't want you to have it you know, the, the board tries to, I would imagine, that the board and the administration of this library try to make decisions based on people who have actually had contact with the, the work in its full context. Um, in, in my mind, I think one of the most dishonest things that happens when materials challenges come up is a couple of pictures or a couple of paragraphs will be completely pulled out of the context of a mul you know, multiple hundred page work and they'll try to define the entire work just by those snippets. And I think that that's, uh, frankly, sometimes the exact, the, the, the arc of the work is the exact opposite of what's in those, in those paragraphs. But even still, sometimes, you know, oh, the, the, the intensity, I'm going to use the word intensity of a work will ebb and flow throughout its, all of its pages. And so there might be a very brief period of, of, in, of really intense discussion and then it'll back off or whatever. So I think that, um, the questionnaire with all of its have you read it do you, are you aware of the reviews um what particularly bothered you what do you think should be done with the work because as i was discussing with our youth services librarian yesterday sometimes when people challenge a work they don't always just want it to be kicked out of the library and thrown in a garbage can sometimes they say well this book is in juvenile and it really belongs in young adult or this book is in young adult and it really belongs in adult. Uh, sometimes it, 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 you know, it, it can be that kind of discussion. But we put all of that on the form, and the form is available um, through our policy manual. And if I, if I recall correctly, we do have access to it on the website. If not, I'll look, we'll look into it. But we try not to make it. I think a lot of people look at the, uh, at our challenge form and they say, "Well, you're trying to erect barriers." to people challenging your work and really it's to give the the evaluation committee if it gets to that point the context to make sure that the person challenging it actually has a bit of a leg to stand on mm -hmm. absolutely and then have we ever had materials that have made it through that process and actually been removed from the collection yeah um yes oh well i want to what i, I want to say is that we have taken things out of the collection since i've been here uh, some some of them have been based on one was based on um mistaken identity uh, it, it was a case where a, we bought a dvd a, a movie 
um, that was produced in the 80s. It had several different versions. You know, there was sort of like the, you know, the TV version, the R-rated version, and then the full-on adult version. But the cases for all of them looked exactly the same. And we accidentally bought the full-on X version before somebody reported it. Ironically and strangely, it circulated 13 times before somebody pointed it out to us. But when they pointed it out to us, we replaced it with, um, the, you know, the, the I'd say call it more the HBO version. We got rid of the, you know, the... the not long ago, somebody challenged a work, and they said, if you didn't, it was another DVD, if you didn't watch it, you should watch it because it's junk. And I kind of put it aside for a while. When I finally watched it, uh, what had happened was we had, it, it was a, a DVD about Ruth Bader Ginsburg that had obviously been produced very quickly after her death. It, looked like, it really looked like it had been done online by a high school student, but it ended up being somehow working its way into the catalog of a pretty major film film distributor. We bought it and we put it on the shelf and somebody watched it and said, I don't have a problem with the I don't have necessarily have a problem with the subject matter, but the quality of this is terrible. And when I finally watched it, it was it was bad. It was cringeworthy. It was like it was like a ro like one of those robot voices reading <laughs> over a bunch of pictures that weren't even related to the topic. So it was just a just a bad purchase. But for the most part, when people have brought um, objections just about the content or whatever it is, um, it, not, I don't believe that there's been any formal reconsideration since I've been a library. I'm not trying to tempt fate. But for the most part, the first decision maker is, is the director, mm -hmm. where I review it and then I let the person know what my thinking is. And a, a lot of the time, I, I had a, a challenge not long ago, a lot of the time is just that a work can sort of exceed the boundaries of somebody's sensibilities, but it's, it doesn't rise to the full level of obscenity. I mean, I, I think that, as I've said before, I think the courts have a pretty good definition of obscenity, and that's that the nature of a work has to be for no other reason than to appeal to what they call prurient interest. In other words, the only reason you would you would want to view or watch or whatever it is is for the pure sexual arousal slash titillation of it. It has no other cultural no other cultural meaning, um, and and I think that that the version the movie was Caligula. I'm just going to tell you <laughs> the version of Caligula that we ended up removing from the collection had scenes that that would be considered they were pornographic. They the the, the things that were shown were of adult film quality, and I was comfortable switching that out because it the the whole point of those scenes in that movie was the was the pornography whereas a lot of the works that are challenged here people have a problem with the subject matter they might have a problem with the word choice but you know sometimes I'll even ask ask people who challenge say do you think the work is obscene and and I don't believe anybody has ever said I think it's they'll use words like vile mm -hmm. they'll use words like disgusting but if I say, do you think it's obscene? Do you think? Do you think? I don't believe anybody has told me yes so far, and it's and that's an important consideration. I hope I'm not waving any red flags in front of the public, <laughs> but I believe in being honest about all of this. Yeah, um, and so I think just based on some of the banning and challenging that has been going on in uh, school libraries lately, we've had patrons that have come in and asked, like, how do we? support the library? How do we educate people more about intellectual freedom and uh, bans and challenging of books? What what would you recommend for library patrons who want to learn more about intellectual freedom? Okay, uh, that's a good question. And I'll answer, I'll try to answer without sounding too snide. 
the, the first thing that I always encourage people to read and know what it says is the First Amendment mm -hmm. and to know what all of the word choices mean. There, there are the Library of Congress uh, and the Congress itself has some really great information about the First Amendment. Like, you know, it says, Congress shall make no law. And then when you, and there's, there's a version of it, you can click on it, and it'll say, Congress is any division of government subject to the decisions of Congress. That would mean public library, city governments. So um, knowing a little bit about the First Amendment uh, is, I, I, think, I think it's fascinating. I, I'm a big fan of this guy by the name of Jacob Mchangama, Mchangama. M-C-H-A-N-G-A-M-A, -A -A, um, who is a Danish lawyer and, and civil uh, human rights activist, and he, he's all about freedom of speech. And he is something of a, I would say, probably a freedom of speech absolutist. Um, and he has written a book uh, called the History, about the history of free speech. Uh, and, but he points out, and uh, in, in just about everything, he's in, and he's moved over from Denmark. He's now at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. He points out repeatedly, the United States should be proud of its First Amendment. It's, it's not common among the governments of the, of the world that there's something that's as absolute as the First Amendment protecting speech. He, 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 it, people abuse it all the time, yes, but you know they say things that are nasty and mean and racist and all that stuff. But the fact that it protects people from government intervention in what they say is, is unique. And I think that that's the first stop. The second thing I think they should read is the... The freedom to read statement that that's you can Google freedom to read statement or freedom to read something written by the American Library Association or, or written by a group of librarians in the American Library Association and it, it's it is a profound I think it's a profoundly brilliant document I think it's you know I was one one of the reasons I'm proudest of our profession is because th this was not if you read the freedom to read statement I really invite anybody who's listening to this to do that. It, it was not written by consultants. It was not written by ethicists. It was not written by lawyers. It was written by librarians, some of them rank-and-file librarians. And the language and the concepts used are so lofty that it makes me proud. It, it makes me still proud to be a librarian. The next thing is the Library Bill of Rights, the original draft of which is based right here in central Iowa, Forrest Spaulding who was the library director at Des Moines Public Library in the 1930s, who was very concerned by all the censorship he saw going on in Nazi Germany, going on in Stalinist Russia. In his mind, and in my mind, and in the mind of lots of, of free thought sorts of people, he equated censorship with malignant movements. Mm -hmm. I equate censorship with malignant movements, and I, I, as, as most people who value freedom might. Um, but he, the, the, the library, bill of, library Bill of Rights, uh, originally the Library Users Bill of Rights, basically said that the library's job is not to, our job is not to form people's minds. People form their own minds. Our jobs are to give them the stuff that they need to do that. Mm. So those three are good. Um, I would, I, I'm trying to think if anything else comes to mind. I, I'm, I'm really going to nerd out. Um, I think that uh, Federalist Papers are always a good, always a good thing to read, mostly because there are discussions about the powers of go the people who, who framed up our government. We're already thinking about, you know, what what you know what should be the limits of, of speech and all, all and all of that, and and uh, that that's always interesting. Also, 
just just to set people's minds at ease, um, I'd say look back at historical news stories about censorship and challenges and that sort of thing, because history keeps repeating itself. I, I have an article in front of me that I might read a snippet from, and I would and I would get, I would invite the listener to guess when it was written before I give you the answer. Um, is that okay if I Absolutely, do that? Yeah. Censorship has been on the rise in the U.S. for the past 10 years. Every region of the country and almost every state has felt the flaring of the censorial spirit. Efforts to ban or squelch books in public libraries and schools doubled in number to 116 a year in the first five years of a certain decade over the last five years of another certain decade. As author L.B. Woods document, documents in his Decade of Censorship in America, the threat to classrooms and libraries. The upsurge in book banning has not let up, not since let up. One reason that one reason being that some 200 local, state, and national organizations now take part in skirmishes over the contents of books circulating under public auspices. The American Library Association, which has been reporting an almost yearly increase in censorial pressures on public libraries, has just totted up the score. It found, without surprise, yet another upsurge. Mm. So, but I so I would invite somebody to say, guess what year that's from. 1981, right before Banned Books we came out. So, you know, the, we're almost the same sentence structure, almost the same language. Mm -hmm. this, this, isn't, this is something that is, I, you know, I always tell people when they, they start to get a little worked up, I say, as long as there are people who can write letters to library boards and council, this is, and as long as they're allowed to voice their opinion, this is something that's going to be around. It, it, it's not as though someday... Some hundred percent of the population is going to wake up and say, "I'm satisfied with everything that's in the public library or the public schools or whatever." It's there's going to be pushback. I, I'm one of those people who I, I I push back on the pushback if it's if it's necessary, but I don't think the, I those people who who so bristle at the pushback that they would want to see it eliminated, I think, are as wrongheaded as some of the pushbackers themselves. So I believe in the discourse. So how can our library patrons um, support our commitment to intellectual freedom here at the library and, you know, support or celebrate Banned Books Week with us? Well, the first thing they can do is visit the library. Visiting the library is, is, is a statistical tick mark for your public library. It, it, that, you know, it's something that we report to the state and it's something that, that impacts our, I guess you'd say, our, both our legitimacy and our relevance. Two, I would say... You know, I'm not going to say do like I do, but I'd say, if, you know, if you hear that there that there's a work out there that's challenged, I always challenge people actually take take a look at it. I mean, um, I think that sometimes the case that's made against a work, and you know, Mein Kampf is an excellent example. I mean, you would figure because people talk about Mein Kampf as being this very convincing work, it, it's. It really is one of the most boring books ever written. I mean, I don't. Maybe people could be. Maybe people were. What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Inspired by it? I doubt it. I mean, the, the reason that it's quote unquote a bestseller is because the government shoved it into every household in Germany when it was written, and a lot of people read it um, because of, because they were morbidly curious. But I'd say, you hear about one of these banned books, pick it up and pick it up and actually take a look at it. I mean, you know, don't. Don't necessarily rely on the photocopied pages that somebody who's out to get the book or the glowing reviews that end up on Amazon when people try to defend the book. Pick it up and make a decision for yourself. That's another way that, that people can celebrate Banned Books Week. 
And I, I would say one way that that I being the book weeks is, is sort of an ongoing celebration in my household with my with my kids is to talk about those things that you approve of uh, the subject matter that your family unit or your or your your social group what you approve of and what you don't and how you came to that consensus and perhaps why it's it might not pro- might not be proper for that consensus to necessarily spread discuss intellectual freedom i mean i'm i'm the kind of person who if i were on a date i'm married thank god but if i were i might say what is your opinion of intellectual freedom or or or, or what kind of book would you never read i think that tells a lot about a person and uh, and the, and that answer can be interesting to say what what would you never consider reading talk about a quick way to the heart of their value system so i'd say exercising your rights as an american is an excellent way to celebrate band books week and to, and i think to stop and think it's it's an unpopular thing to say i guess these days but to stop and think about the foresight that all of those flawed people who wrote the constitution and established this government their foresight um, they had in knowing that governments will be out to get people's expression and putting in locking in a protection of it. I, I think that that was very redemptive. Do you feel like there's anything that we haven't covered that you'd want to make sure gets in this episode? I always like to remind people that the censorial spirit, as I call it, that that's the urge to keep people from reading or hearing or, or, or seeing something. Um, it really doesn't... Now, it can become politically prevalent on one side or another for brief periods of time, but it's pretty free form. People's poli- where their ideology doesn't have that much impact on, on whether or not they're willing to censor. I think that I have met people who are very progressive and, and who are who would want to see certain books removed. I've met people who are very conservative and they're outraged by, by things that are out there. I, I, and I think a really fun, a really fun demonstration of that was that in the mid '90s, Frank Zappa, who was a, a rock musician and who was very much against censorship, went on a TV show called Crossfire. And Crossfire is not on the air anymore, but it was kind of like where these things were like left and right used to have their discussions. And he ended up in the middle. And the interesting thing about that it was from 1986. The interesting thing about that episode of Crossfire was that Frank Zappa ended up getting beaten up by the guy on the left and the guy on the right. They were both mad at Frank Zappa for standing up for these lyrics. You know, the guy on the right was like, how can you defend all this garbage or whatever? And the, and the guy on the left was like, you know, these videos are degrading to women and all this stuff. And Frank Zappa, for all of his flaws and all this stuff, he had a stiff spine on that episode. And he said, you know, neither one of you guys, none of you guys have, have the right, the smarts, or the holiness to tell me or anybody else what they should be reading or listening to or whatever. So um, I think that that looking up the historical context of all of these efforts can be both, I guess, di- you know, disheartening because they won't go away, but also they can they can make it seem not so bad because they don't go away. And 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 the arc of intellectual freedom, in my opinion, I think tends to keep curving towards responsible openness. Awesome. Well. Thanks for sitting down and chatting about this. Oh, yeah. And uh, appreciate, appreciate your time. I thank you for having me. I, I, this has been fun. This is always fun. Yay.
All right, now let's get into the reading roundup for this podcast. Daryl talked about reading The 90s by Chuck Klosterman, and then he suggested that people read the Freedom to Read Statement, the Library Bill of Rights, and the First Amendment. Now let's get into the upcoming events here in the next two weeks. We will not have story times the week of October 2nd, but we will have them the week of October 9th. And as a reminder, we have Lapsit story time on Mondays, toddler story time on Tuesdays, baby doll story time on Wednesdays, family story time on Wednesday, Thursday, and Fridays, and Saturday story time on Saturday. Now for the rest of the events, on Monday, October 2nd, we have Social Security, Knowing Your Options from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. On Tuesday, October 3rd, we have Tween Club Read from 4.15 to 5 o'clock. On Wednesday, October 4th, we have Learn How to Be Smart About Gun Safety from 7 to 8 p.m. On Thursday, October 5th, we have Dungeons and Dragons, a one-shot series from 5.45 to 9 p.m. On Friday the 6th, we have Teen Halloween from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. On Saturday the 7th, we have Tech One-on-One Sessions from 10 to 11.30 a.m. On Sunday the 8th, we have Sensory Spaces from 1 to 2 p.m. On Monday, October 9th, we have The Groundbreaking Men and Women of Fort Des Moines from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. Also on that evening, we have Club Read Hybrid Edition from 7 to 8.45. On Tuesday the 10th, we have Adult Coloring Club from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Also on that Tuesday, we have Kids Club Read from 4.15 to 5 p.m. On Wednesday the 11th, we have After School Adventures, where they'll be doing pumpkin decorating from 3.45 to 4.30 p.m. On Thursday the 12th, we have YA Not Club Read from 6.30 to 8 o'clock p.m. On Saturday the 14th, the WDM Writers Group will meet from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Also on that Saturday, we have a blues music performance from Matt Woods, and that'll go from 1 to 2 p.m. And finally, on Sunday the 15th, we have our second Iowa File session of the season titled Camp Dodge, Always Ready, from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of In This Day and Page. I'll see you for our next one very soon. Have a fantastic day.